Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ag Innovation News Podcast presented by the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute of Minnesota. I'm Dan Skogan, Director of Government and Industry Relations for AURI. Guests on the Ag Innovation News Podcast will shed light on innovations in value-added agriculture, highlight important voices and work that's being done throughout the Minnesota ag sector, and educate the public about resources and organizations that support Minnesota agriculture. Today, we get a chance to visit with Peter Imel, the chair of the Minnesota Cultivated Wild Rice Council. Peter, most Minnesotans are probably familiar with research and promotion councils for commodities like corn and soy. And I want to get some of your background here in just a little bit, but they may be surprised to learn that wild rice has its own group. Share some of the background about the Minnesota Cultivated Wild Rice Council with our listeners today, like the type of work that it does, its goals, its mission, and really how it functions. The council began in 1974 and operates via a grower paid checkoff. We represent all the cultivated growers in the state, which now number about two dozen. As the name would suggest, we deal with research and promotion, but also education and leadership. So if you work through all those things backwards, leadership portion, we're trying to cultivate as uh, our farms move into the next generation, a new group of leaders that could work within the council and primarily through involvement. And then the education piece, the council really acts as the central location or clearinghouse for all the information about the cultivated industry. A one-stop shop, if you would, for everything from grower relationships to uh, our research projects to marketing and marketer support. Then you get into promotion and the marketing. We operate and fund promotional events, primarily a booth at the Minnesota State Fair. But we found that as a council, it's really more productive to, again, operate as the information source to the industry. The marketers and retailers do a really good job, and we just want them using the correct information and the most accurate and up-to-date information as they're out doing their job. And then last and the biggest part for us is the research portion. So we're providing funding for research projects through our checkoff, identifying research opportunities, identifying grant opportunities consolidating industry concerns among the growers, and then finding research partners as we've done with AURI in the past. Is the council made up just of producers? Yes, we've got an executive director that uh, is not a grower. She and her office handle a lot of our uh, logistics and organization, but the council itself is all active producers. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got involved with the Cultivated Wild Rice Council. So I'm a second generation wild rice farmer. My dad started the business in 1971. He didn't grow up on a farm. He actually grew up out on the East Coast, but saw wild rice as an opportunity while he was a student at the University of Minnesota. So this is an environment that I grew up in. However, I did spend time, like I say, having a, a real job. I qualify that as having full benefits and having somebody else sign your paycheck. So I got a graduate degree from the University of Minnesota, and then I went to work for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee for several years, and then moved back to the farm 18 years ago. So I've been here ever since and enjoyed it immensely. Wow. Always felt the calling to come back, or did it suddenly come upon you that you wanted to get back home and get your hands back in the dirt? Always wanted to come back. Fortunately, had the opportunity to go do some other things and, and make the decision to come back, which was the right fit for me. So fortunate on both fronts. And, and at that time, when I came back, we had just purchased some more land. So we were a little short staffed at the time. And so it was a good opportunity to start a land development project, come back when we needed more help. And the timing was right for me as well. 
I think it's safe to say our listeners are quite familiar with other rices, the brown and the the white rice. Uh, When we talk about wild rice, explain to me how it's different regarding cultivation, growing locales, seasons, uses, market size, those kinds of things. How's wild rice different? So the primary difference is wild rice is the only grain native to North America. White and brown rice were adapted for production in the southern states in California, mostly from Southeast Asia. Growing conditions are somewhat similar. You'd see paddies that are flooded with dikes around them. So there's a lot of infrastructure necessary in order to do all this. If you look at wild rice, its native range is in the Great Lakes, upper Midwest, up into Canada. And right now, the primary areas of cultivation are Minnesota and California. There's some limited production still up in Canada and a little bit in Europe. Most consumers in the upper Midwest, Minnesota area would be accustomed to seeing wild rice as a one pound package of dark, shiny kernels on the grocery store shelf. But about 85% of the use is in blends with white or other brown rice. And so that's the bulk of the market usage. And that's how most of the rest of the industry sees wild rice. I was just going to ask you about the growing season. So we generally plant in the fall. In this region with the cold winters, it needs that cold weather in order to break dormancy. So it's sitting out there right now as we watch it snow, perfectly content, ready to break dormancy in the spring. The natural stands that exist in this part of the world would have gone through the same thing in the lakes and rivers of its native area. How about cultivation? I know you put it on boggy or wet soil. How do you get those big pieces of equipment to stay on top? A lot of modification, putting things on track. This 60 plus year history of the industry has always been driven by farmer innovation, trying different things. But primarily, we're looking at putting things on tracks, but also managing water levels. So you're looking at laser leveling and drain tiling and a lot of infrastructure that goes into trying to manage that water. If I call Minnesota the wild rice capital of the world, am I wrong? Minnesota has been the largest producer five of the last six years. It's also the state grain, and it's got a long, unique history that's rooted here. So I, I think that's a fair assessment. How about volume? I don't know if, you know, we talk bushels with soybeans and corn and other commodities. How does wild rice talk about its volume? So we talk in terms of finished pounds, and so that would be what you would see in that package on the grocery store shelf. There's about 18 to 20 million finished pounds per year that the market uses. Last year's production was about 12 million pounds in Minnesota and six and a half in California. So the market's been fairly consistent, much more consistent than the production, but that would be the nature of any uh, specialty crop. What makes it so good? Well, I think it tastes great, so that's a great place to start. But the work that we did with AURI in the past was specifically looking at the protein profile. As anybody who follows agri-nutrition work in the last 10 years knows that uh, plant-based protein has become a bigger part of the conversation all the time. We hadn't looked at the protein profile of cultivated wild rice in quite some time. So like we talked about early on, the growers really defined the research projects. We reached out to AURI to look at what kind of a profile we had to work with with the crop. It turns out that wild rice has got a fantastic protein profile. It's almost a complete protein by definition. So that puts it much more in the category with peas and lentils and things like that and less like the cereal grains. So really a great product to work with and a lot of uses that we can get into if you'd like.
Still, it really needs to be processed, doesn't it? I think people might be surprised if they were to drive by the processing areas where it's just in large windrows out in the open. Yeah, so the primary issue there is the plant itself's only been in domestication for the last 60 plus years. Now, if you look at the long history of the rest of the cereal grains, when all these things started, they behave more like weeds. So they grow up and the seed would fall off and back into the lake or river, and that provided your seed base for the next year. Well, unfortunately for us, that's our best product that's falling off. So we've been trying to, through breeding methods and cultivation, prevent that. But a byproduct of that is that there's a lot of immature kernels that we haul in to the processing plant. So our product's about 35% moisture when we deliver it. So it is not stable at that point, and it needs to be processed, get the moisture down, remove any material other than grain in order to get that product stabilized so that they can go through grading and hulling and things like that. It's a very time-sensitive process to get all this done in the shortfall that we have. From a crop that grows through the winter or is, is seeded before the winter comes, it's surprising how delicate it actually is. Absolutely. It's a very unique plant. Between the dormancy issue and growing in water and the challenges that come along with a newly domesticated crop, those are all very unique aspects that we deal with day in and day out, both from an operational standpoint and also from a research standpoint. Peter, I want to turn back to some of the project work that you did with AURI on the wild rice or cultivated wild rice, finding out some of its nutritional characteristics, effects on the gut microbiome. Can you share some of the information that that project identified as being important for your organization? Well, like we discussed before, it was really an effort to try and define that protein profile. We hadn't done any work like that in a couple of decades. The technology had changed. And what it showed us is we've really got a product here that really presents a nice alternative source of protein for people that are are looking for that alternative or in a non-meat diet. It was nice to see that we could present that alternative. I'm by no means a dietitian, but you know, having a readily available domestically produced product that has that kind of a protein profile, along with a lot of antioxidants, really presents a good product and one that I think tastes great besides. So I, I can't say that of all the things that I eat that are good for me. And from that work, you're confident that you can make health claims about its beneficial use? Yeah. You know, that's one of the benefits of working with an organization like AURI is, is you guys were really helpful in finding us the right researchers that could do the right testing and get results that would stand up to publishable peer review. And that's the sort of information that we really want to gain, particularly as a clearinghouse for information for the industry. We don't want to put our thumb on the scale. We, we want somebody doing the work that can provide us rock solid scientific basis so that that's the information we can provide out to the marketers and retailers and anybody who's interested. Peter, I want to look to the future a little bit, but first I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to the Ag Innovation News Podcast, and it's presented by the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute of Minnesota. We're visiting today with Peter Eimel. He is the chair of the Minnesota Cultivated Wild Rice Council. And the Wild Rice Council and AURI have had projects together. And based on what we have learned, Peter, what are we seeing in the future? New products, new uses? What can you shed some light on for us today? I'm very optimistic about all of those. 
I don't have anything concrete that I know of that's in the works. The marketers and retailers are always looking at new uses, trying to get this product out in front of the public because of all of its health benefits. But what the AORI project really did for us was it didn't so much direct our future work as a council, but it certainly reinforced our position that going through the whole process of growers wanting to find out this information because we think it has value, going through council process with our administrative staff and finding the right people, getting the data, and in the end, being able to disseminate it. I think it really highlights what the research and promotion councils were designed to do. And I think this group does it very, very well. And I think it also kind of shines a light on your your mission or your purpose in your opening statements today about educating and then actively involving people and bringing kind of the product forward in a way that is good for the producers, but good for the consumers as well. Absolutely. You know, as, as the council, if we're looking at specific promotional projects, it's hard not to benefit one group more so than another in terms of marketers and retailers. And so we've really seen our mission more as, as the clearinghouse for information. And I think that's actually helped strengthen the relationship between the growers, the councils, and our retail and marketing groups, because we don't feel the need to favor one group over another, and, and, and we can move that information back and forth freely. Peter, when you think about the product you're producing, the wild rice itself, and the council and the work that they're doing, uh, this is a little off the beaten path here, but what keeps you up at night? What are some barriers or what are some concerns that the council might be facing in the near future? There's always regulatory concerns. We use a lot of water, and I like to think that we're very judicious in that water use. That also limits us in what we can use as far as pesticide and herbicide applications being in that aquatic environment. So we follow all that very closely and we're a small group. And so we disseminate that information and best practices repeatedly amongst everybody. And the fact that it's a small group, one small mistake can really impact the whole industry. So those are the sorts of things that keep me up at night. But I think the relationship that we've got as growers in the council and and even our processors is, again, free-flowing information. And so that helps ease those concerns. So let me ask you, it's a small group. Are you looking to expand? Are you looking for more acres? Are you looking to add growers? Yes. You know, there's, I think that there's a lot of potential in the industry. I think the future of the industry is here in Minnesota. California's had a lot of environmental challenges in the last decade, particularly around water and the water intensive crops that are grown out there are becoming more difficult to produce. Wild rice would certainly fall in that category. The growth of the industry is slow, but it's steady. And so I think the future for wild rice in Minnesota is very bright. We do hear occasionally from those outside of the state that it's actually hard to find wild rice in their markets. Is the council working to increase that distribution process, increase consumption, increase the availability of wild rice in other parts of the country? Yes, that's always been a concern for us. You know, what I've seen in the last 20 years of different places that I've lived and traveled is that particularly with the plant-based proteins, the grocery store shelves are getting busier, you know, particularly those areas where wild rice and blended wild rice and things like that used to be a dominant player. There's a lot more products in the grocery store shelves in that area. And so it's more difficult than ever for us to really set ourselves apart. 
what I am hoping is that the more information that we can generate regarding the positive health benefits of this product, along with its flavor profile and taste and multitude of uses, will really help it sell itself. But we really want to support our marketers and retailers as best we can in product development and information dissemination in any way we really can. And it really does appear that it's showing up in more and more products. It is. It's a very diverse product. Like I said, we talked about protein quite a bit. I mentioned antioxidants. It's established well as a protein or a fat replacement in meat blends, so you can use less fat. And along with that, it tastes good. That's the one thing I keep going back to with this product of all the products that I grow and all the things that I eat that are good for me. This is still my favorite. The Minnesota Cultivated Wild Rice Council website has the largest collection of recipes dealing with wild rice that I know of. And just a quick scan through that shows you just a variety of uses. I'm continually amazed at at the way people figure out a way to use this product. And we're going to get to that contact information here in just a bit as we get ready to kind of wrap things up today, Peter. But before we close, any upcoming events, projects, initiatives that you'd like uh, listeners to know about around the wild rice? Our biggest promotional event of the year, which seems a long ways off right now, is our booth at the State Fair. Our staff does a great job. They've been there for a long time. And that it would seem unusual to me to not have a booth on wild rice at the Minnesota State Fair, being the state grain. But in terms of other work, we're continually reevaluating our research projects. We meet four times a year, but two of those are really dedicated to research projects. And we talked about the council website, which is mnwildrice.org. That is the clearinghouse for all of our health information, all all of our history, brief history of the industry. And that's really our best point of contact. And, And like I said, using the council as the clearinghouse for information is what we really see as its as its best use. But I also want to highlight that the recipes that are in there, again, are fantastic. They're extremely diverse. And if you can't find something in there that you like, I don't know if there's anything I can do to help you. <laughs> and, and if they have their own wild rice recipe, are you interested? Do you want them to send it in? Absolutely. We have an annual cooking contest run by the council as well recipe contest. And so those are added to our database, but also uh, are promoted through our research and promotion activities as well. So anybody that's got a fantastic recipe, please reach out and get it on the list and we'll get you in the contest. And give them that web address one more time so they can find all that information. Okay. It is mnwildrice.org. Peter, thanks for your time today. It's been great visiting with you about cultivated wild rice in Minnesota and the future that it holds. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate the opportunity. Always enjoy talking about the crop. We've been visiting today with uh, Peter Imel, the chairman of the Minnesota Cultivated Wild Rice Council. Thanks for joining us today, and thank you for listening to the Ag Innovation News Podcast. It's presented by the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute of Minnesota. Thanks to our podcast crew, Eric Evans, AURI Director of Communications, and Lisa Martinez, AURI Communications Coordinator and Editor of this production. To learn more about AURI, visit auri.org.